Amen. Hey. Judges 11 tonight. And we will be picking up in verse 12 of chapter 11. And I'm just going to read, starting there in verse 12. It says, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabuk and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness, and they went around the land of Edom, and the land of Moab, and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. (coughs) Israel then sent messengers to Shion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Shion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Shion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave Shion and all the people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated him. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, who inhabited the country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabuk, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? And all that Yahweh our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, and king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? When Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Eror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon three hundred years, why did you not deliver them from within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh, the judge, decides this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. So this section uh, is a continuation or picks up on uh, where we left off last time with Jephthah recently elected to leadership in Israel. And then now it's his job to defend the people against the imposing army of the Ammonites. Um, As we look at these verses, uh, I kind of want to put a header in front of you or a a main idea, and that is knowing history matters. Knowing history matters quite a bit. And you'll notice that the big difference between uh, Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites, the big debate, the big question, is what happened in the past and is there a claim to this land currently? That's the big issue that's at stake. And it gets confusing a little bit, so I'll point this out. I didn't notice it until three days into studying this text. But there's a difference between the Ammonites and the Amorites. It's one letter, but they're two different groups of people, very different groups of people. 
Um, and so you'll notice that there, the debate that's going on right now between Jephthah is between the king of the Ammonites and then the argument that happens later on about the event that took place in Israel's history is against the Amorite people. So it's two different groups. The first one is the Ammonites, that's this group. And then the group that is being referenced during the time of the Exodus, that's the Amorites. Okay, so I'm pointing that out because it took me a long time to notice it. So I want to give you um, a heads up on that. Um, as we look at these verses, though, you'll see... Uh, kind of the dispute and the claim first off, you'll see that right away in verse 12, when Jephthah questions the king of the Ammonites, and he says, essentially, why are you about to make war on us? What is, what is your issue? Why are you going to come and invade this land? And then the Ammonite king answers him and essentially says, because this is our land. Whatever you say, whatever territory you own, it was unjustly attained, and it's really our territory. We have a claim to this area. And then he, he, he says in history that when Israel came out of Egypt, that's when they took away the land. They took it away from this region. And so because it's ours, just give it over to us and there will be no issue. And if you are not necessarily familiar with the history of these events unfolding, you might say, well, if that's true, if what that king just said is accurate, then he does have a claim to the land that the Israelites are in right now. Then they would have to dispossess. They would be there unjustly. But you'll notice that this is not true. And Jephthah takes issue primarily with the historical retelling of these events. He's essentially saying the Ammonite king has twisted history and he's made a propaganda machine out of it. And now he's going to use this twisted history as a, an excuse or a motivation to get into the land that he really just wants himself. He's using this as a tool to get his people more territory. And so Jephthah uh, refutes or responds by essentially reclaiming history or reclaiming the narrative. He gets into the events as they occurred and he tells truthfully what happened. Now, this retelling is very faithful to two different texts. It's actually retold twice in the Old Testament uh, besides this. So there's these verses here, but the other place I want to look at that kind of summarizes those events for us is in Deuteronomy chapter two. And that's a pretty clean summary of the events. So it's Deuteronomy chapter two and verse 26. And we won't read all of it. We're going to kind of skip through that text, but just to get the main idea of what is being laid out. So I'm going to start in verse 26 of Deuteronomy 2. It says, So I, and that's Moses, sent messengers from the wilderness to Kedemoth to Shion, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road, and I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. So Moses' claim is that he's gonna, he just wants to pass through. He doesn't want to settle in the territory. He doesn't want to possess the land. He just wants to go from where he's going to the promised land. They're trying to make their trek. And then the response that he gets in verse 30 is Shion, the king of Hezban, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord our God had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And then the Lord said to me, again, that's Moses, Behold, I have begun to give Shihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Shihon came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him and his sons and all of his people. 
So the claim from Moses in this historical retelling is that God gave the land over to Israel, not because it was Israel's land, but because Shion had forfeited the land by going against Israel when they were just trying to peaceably pass through. But then I want to turn your attention again to one more verse in that section, which is in verse uh, 37. And it says, this is the, they talk about all the territory they're possessing. And in verse 37, he says, only to the land of the sons of Ammon did you not draw near, that is, to the banks of the river Jabbok and to the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us to enter. So Moses is saying that they were careful. They didn't just take all the land that they could possibly take. They weren't conquesting this territory. They were simply gaining the territory that had been forfeited by the king of the Amorites, and they leave the land of the Ammonites alone. So they, they take the land that was given up, and then they leave everything else alone. And so when Jephthah retells the story, he tells it exactly like that. He says, well, he's talking to the king of the Ammonites. He says, if you look in your history book, if you look at the events as they unfolded, you'll notice that none of what you just said is true. It's not that the Israelites came out of Egypt and just started conquering all of the land. The Israelites were trying to go through the land. And then the king of the Amorites, not even the Ammonites, came up against us. We defeated him because he wouldn't let us pass through. And as a result of us defeating him, we took his land. And so his argument uh, is first and foremost that the record and the story that you're telling is not accurate. It's not an accurate recounting of the events. He makes a second claim off of this, which you'll see down in verse uh, 23, um, which is that he says that Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites, right? Remember, that's that first group that stood up against Israel in history past. He says, God was the one who kicked them out from before his people Israel. And then he asks this question to remember the king of the other group, the Ammonites, and are you to take possession of them? So his basic claim is, you didn't have it in the first place when we beat this territory. And at what point in time did it become your territory to now lay claim over? And then he says, uh, almost a sarcastic question in verse 24. He says, will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that our God, Yahweh, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So his basic claim there is, you have a local deity, a God that you worship, and notice that he's not asserting that this is a God and there's many gods and Yahweh is one of these gods. That'll become clear later in the text. But he's basically saying is, why don't you take what your God has given to you, which is the land that the Israelites hadn't possessed, it's the land that they currently own, be happy with that. And if you have issue with the stuff that you've been given, the blessings that you've received, take it up, not with me, take it up with your God and see if he'll give you more stuff. As for us, whatever Yahweh has given us, which earlier he said was this territory, that's our land and we're going to keep it. So his basic claim is the, the land that you think is yours is not yours. Moreover, your God didn't give it to you. Proof is we live here now and Yahweh gave it to us. And then he makes two more arguments and both of them are essentially what you would call an argument from precedent, which basically means this is how it stood for a long period of time. And so on the basis of its standing, we can see that no one has disputed it beforehand. So the first argument from precedent is a previous ruler, Balak, the son of Zippor. You can find this story uh, in Numbers 22. This is the famous Balak and Balaam and the donkey story where he hires a, a prophet out to get him to curse Israel. And the, the point he's making is Balak, this false prophet, didn't try to fight Israel. So, and he was the king at the time that Israel took over this territory. So if Balak, Balak who was the king of the Ammonites at this time, if he didn't think it was his territory, and if he knew that it wasn't his territory, as evidenced by the fact that he doesn't go and make war against Israel, then why do you, 300 years later, think that it belongs to you? 
So he's saying your first ruler who was ruling at this time took no issue with it. In fact, if you look at the text in Numbers, it does say that Balak had a problem with Israel, but his problem isn't that Israel took his territory. His problem is he's worried that Israel is very powerful and that they live so close and that they won't be able to overthrow Israel at some point. So he tries to get the false prophet then to curse the Israelites. So Balak has a problem with Israel, it's just not that they took his land. And then all this kind of comes to a forefront where he concludes, and all of this evidence that he's laid before uh, the king of the Ammonites, he concludes in verse 27 by saying, Therefore, I have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war against me. Then this concluding statement, which you'll see elsewhere in scripture as well, the Lord, or in this case Yahweh, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And in that, we see that it's not that Jephthah thinks that there's multiple gods. He doesn't think that there's Yahweh and Chemosh and all these other deities. His argument earlier is an argument for sarcasm. And his argument now is that there's one God, Yahweh. He's the judge. Yahweh will decide between you and me when we go out to battle who's in the right. And the essential claim is, if I'm right and Yahweh agrees with me, I will win. And if you're right and Yahweh agrees with you, you will win. But he's not saying that there's Yahweh versus Chemosh and we'll see how this battle goes. Does that make sense? So he's, he's a monotheist. He's making a claim from a bunch of different kinds of arguments. And the essential claim is very similar to what David says when he goes against uh, Saul. He said, he, David lays out all the injustices Saul has done to him. And then he says, all right, Saul, the Lord judge between you and me. We'll see who's right and who's wrong at the end of the day. Uh, so this, this phrase, this euphemism is seen elsewhere in the Old Testament. And you'll notice all of this, let's say, diplomatic or ambassadorial kind of uh, mission falls flat. In verse 28, we see that the king of the Ammonites, despite all of the argument, despite all of the um, claims laid before him, he decides that he would not listen to words of Jephthah that Jephthah has sent to him. And next week, we're going to look at how this leads to a confrontation and a battle in which the Ammonites get completely destroyed. It's only a couple of sentences before they're off the map. And then the rest of the story moves on to other nuances in Jephthah's story. But the point here is not, you know, what's happening next week that they get defeated. I think the, the reason I wanted to zoom in on these verses is, uh, is for the reason that Jephthah makes a defense um, for the salvation history of Israel in all of these words that's spoken. So when he goes out against the king of the Ammonites, when they engage in this debate, and really Jephthah has this monologue where he's making his arguments, it's a very similar strategy to what the apologists use in the, in the book of Acts when they engage with false teaching against what did or what did not happen with regards to Christ, what did or what did not happen with regards to the resurrection, what did or what did not happen with regards to the church. And the early church has to engage with these kinds of things all the time where the truth is being lied about and the Christians have to recapture the truth, tell it how it is, and then on the basis of that truth argue for their rightful claim to what's, what, what is actually right. So to give you an example of this in the book of Acts, in Acts 26, Paul is up against uh, King Agrippa, and his basic claim is the resurrection did happen, Jesus was unjustly tried, he was crucified, everyone knows this, and the, the one-liner that he says to King Agrippa, he says, I don't think any of this has escaped your notice, because nothing was done in a corner. All of this was done in the open, everyone saw these things, these are plainly known facts. And it's on the basis of these facts that Paul then argues his case for Jesus being Lord. He, he resurrected from the grave. Everyone knows this. People have seen him. We have eyewitnesses. And on the basis of this, I'm arguing for the fact that he is God. And then he says, King Agrippa, will you be a Christian? And King Agrippa essentially ignores all the evidence and says, it's been such a short period of time. You probably won't convince me. And he sends him back to prison. 
So, but that same type of argument is the same thing you see here in Jephthah, where history really does matter. And the important facts of the case are what really determines what is and what isn't true. Because if the type of history that the king of the Ammonites tells is correct, then Israel and Israel's God has screwed up in some way by committing this massive injustice in history. But what Jephthah claims and the history that he lays forth is actually one of God being patient, a God who is careful to not take land that doesn't belong to the people of Israel, and a God who only acts to defend his people and to preserve them. So the king of the Amorites goes against Israel to destroy them because they don't like them. And then God, in his salvation history, preserves and protects the people of Israel. In the same way that when Pharaoh goes against the people of Israel, God protects them by delivering them through the Red Sea. In the same way that he preserves them in the wilderness by giving them manna and giving them food and giving them water. So this event, while seemingly insignificant, is just a big part of salvation history as all the other events of God's faithfulness to protect his people. And I think it's interesting that Jephthah is very careful to not just dismiss the claims and just go straight to war. He wants to get the story straight. He wants to get the facts straight to defend really the argument that God is just, that this is how things did occur. And on the basis of how things occurred, we're actually in the right and God is still God. That's the kind of argument that he's making. And I think putting this on the ground, you know, for us today, the, these kinds of defenses of the faith are, are still prevalent today. I don't know how many times you engage in apologetics or you engage with people who would refute the Christian faith or who have bones to pick against it. But one of the common things you'll see is the kind of twisting of history, the speculation that Jesus was mythological or Jesus never got out of the grave or the miracles weren't really real or those eyewitness accounts from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, we can't count on those. And all of those same basic things, they don't dispute the downstream claims, they wanna dispute the actual facts that did occur. And so as Christians, just like Jephthah knows his history and that's the basis of his argument, I think it'd be wise for us also to know our history and not just know it from an intellectual stance, also know why it's important. For Jephthah, it's important because this is God who is the judge, who's the just judge, who's defending his people. And for us, those facts aren't just arbitrary, nice to knows and, and fun facts. It's like the very core of what we believe, that Jesus did resurrect from the grave, that that is a radical event, that if that's true, it totally changes how we see human history. That because Jesus got out of the grave and because he started his church and because these are unlearned men, these plain facts speak for themselves as to the validity and the power of what's going on. This is what you see in the New Testament with Jesus disputing with the Pharisees where he does plainly seen miracles and they dispute not the miracles, but the fact that Jesus did them. And so you see this kind of engagement back and forth all the time between belief and unbelief. And it, the unbelievers are often the ones who are seen as denying what's plainly obvious in scripture. So I think we can take encouragement from that because history is in our favor. The, the history as it's, as it's truly told is in the favor of the believer, that those things are historically reliable, they're validated. And when we go out into the world and we engage with people who dislike the claims of the faith, we have an argument on our side that is from the place of truth, objective truth that can be validated, you can go look it up. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful way in which we can start to make a defense for the faith that we hold to, in the same way that Jephthah does here in the text. So with that, uh, I'll just close in prayer and then we can go to discussion. Father, I thank you for uh, this day and this, uh, this time together. Lord, I pray that you would um, be with us now as we, as we discuss your word, as we uh, engage and we um, talk about all the, the truth contained in it, um, things that have been on our hearts, things that um, 
we, we ponder and we think, uh, think about often, Lord, um, would all of it be edifying? Would all of it be um, glorifying to you? Would we be uh, slow to speak and uh, quick to listen and um, careful with uh, how we think about and how we approach you, um, knowing that we're not just talking about casual, uh, everyday topics, but we're talking about uh, eternally significant things. Lord, we ask and we pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen.